Father, we're grateful for your bringing us together again on this, your day, and we ask, Father, that you will open our hearts and our minds as we continue through uh, the book of Hebrews together. Lord, we're grateful for the remembrances that you've given us in your word, a constant challenge and a constant reminder of your goodness to us, your kindness to us. And we also know, Lord, that your word is a double-edged sword that cuts right into the very marrow of who we are and, and shows us for who we are and, and drives us to you. And I, I pray that your word will be effective in that way this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on in, friends. Well, if you recall last week, um, we're, we were in chapter 4 of Hebrews. I was thinking about this recently. Today we're going to do chapter 5, and we have three more weeks. That's not good, actually. Um, and maybe I just unconsciously planned it that way so that I could skip the hard stuff. I don't know. if That, that, that would have been on some subconscious level, not necessarily intentional. Um, but if you recall from last week, we see that the author of the Hebrews is making a, a, figural, a figural correspondence between what happened to Israel in the wilderness and what's happening to this second generation of Christians. In, and again, I was talking with a colleague about this this week, possibly in some area of Rome. We don't really know for sure where they were. Um, and what's the point of contact in this figural or metaphoric relationship between um, Israel and the wilderness and these group of Christians. It's an argument that moves really from the lesser to the greater. And those are the kind of arguments that the author of the Hebrews makes from beginning to end. They're lesser to greater arguments. If it was this case under the administration of Moses, for example, how much more so is it the case under the administration of Jesus? If it was this with the ministry of angels... How much more so under the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth? That's the move that you have going back and forth. And so chapter 4 is a challenge. It's, uh, it's in your grill, if we use those, that kind of terminology. It's in your face in a way that it's to remind believers to hold on to their faith. It's a challenge to hold on to belief. Um, today, that was the operative word in chapter 4. Today, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. Um, last night, uh, I, my wife reminded our family, I'd forgotten about this song, but my wife reminded our family about um, the, ten, the, the Canaan Spies kid song. Did any of you remember this growing up? Ten men went to, twelve men went to spy on Canaan. You remember? Ten were bad and two were good. Oh boy. Well, and then the rest goes there. Um, so you have this whole, whole remembrance of, in the book of Joshua, and that goes back into Numbers as well, actually, um, where the spies are sent into the land, and they come, they spend a long period of time there, and then they come back, and they report, this place is awesome. Milk and honey just flowing left and right. Clusters of grapes that we have to carry on poles back. Well, great. Everybody's ready to go in. And then 10 said, but we're, we're just grasshoppers in their sight. And two of them, Caleb and Joshua, said, actually, no, um, we have the Lord on our side. We, we can do this. That's the point of contact that's being made here. Um, the challenge to obedience, and there's a large call to obedience in the book of Hebrews, but the call to obedience is the flip side of the same coin that's a call to belief. 
What was the hardening of the heart in the wilderness? What was the hardening of the heart in the church? It's not necessarily in pure moral categories that the author of the Hebrews is speaking here. He's speaking within the frame of the Old Testament covenant itself. God made a promise to the people of Israel, I will fight for you. God made a covenant formula with His people that's really at the heart of all of Old Testament theology. I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. That's how this goes. I'm your God, you're my people. And if you're going to be my people, then you're going to be a people that's marked by faith. Marked by faithfulness. And what does that faith slash faithfulness slash obedience look like at its core? It looks like at its core, we will hold on to the promises of God, His promises to save His promises to redeem. His promises to fight on our behalf. We will hold on to these promises despite the circumstances that we're in now. And if you want to know, I mean, that's basically the cliff notes of the Old Testament history of Israel. There's the cliff notes. Are you going to believe that God's going to fight for you despite the fact that circumstances are really bad? And think about some of the really bad circumstances. Uh, Sennacherib and the Assyrians are coming down from the north. That's real bad, right? Um, the Egyptians and their rumbling chariots are right back here. And uh, the Red Sea is there. That's real, real bad. The Babylonians, that's a rough bunch. Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, not somebody you really want to take home for a Sunday afternoon lunch. Nebuchadnezzar is now coming down on a, all the kind of geopolitical realities, difficult realities that came into their lives again and again. And the challenge that you read through the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of the minor prophets, is a straightforward challenge. Will you hold on to the promises of God to redeem? Even if the circumstances now are screaming at you, that that redemption will be delayed. But even then, are you going to hold on to the promises of God? That's the challenge. Do not harden your hearts today. Do not harden your hearts in what way? To not believe that what God promised us is in the gospel is true. Um, again, I, I'm, this is a bit of a rant here, but um, I, I feel strongly about this kind of challenge coming from the Hebrews, leading in quite naturally for us to encourage ourselves, and again, I'm talking to the choir here because you're all here this morning, right? But to go to church. It's why we need to go to church. It's why we need each other. It's what you have in Hebrews chapter 4 as well. A challenge to encourage one another to faith. Because left to ourselves as islands, you know, we, we're, you know, we're not, um, we're not sufficient unto ourselves to, to, uh, uh, um, engender that kind of faith and obedience that comes from holding on uh, to the promises of God. A uh, solipsism is a pretty bad philosophical worldview. You know, a solipsist is a, there's not very many philosophers who really believe this, but a solipsist is someone who believes that really they're the only reality in the universe. Um, and there are philosophical uh, positions out there that hold this. Matter of fact, I heard uh, one philosopher, a uh, uh, Christian, one of my favorite, Al- Alvin Plantigas, his name, um, Christian philosopher, taught at Notre Dame for years. He's from the Reformed tradition. And uh, Plantinga told this story in a, in a public setting, a, a howler kind of story, where he was in a philosophy department visiting, bringing a lecture, and apparently there was a philosophy faculty member that actually was a bona fide solipsist, that genuinely believed 
that the material world is only understood from my own existence. I am the center of the world. It does, it's not, it's, I, don't, I didn't mean to go down this. It's not necessarily a moral claim, but it's a claim that whatever's out there, there's no claim to reality. It's all sort of within. And so, um, uh, 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 Plantinga asked the secretary to this philosopher, what's it like working for a solipsist? And her answer was, we treat him really well. Because if he goes, we all go. Right? <laughs> Pretty good, right? Um, there's no solipsism that's going on in the book of Hebrews, right? There's no challenge uh, to, to, uh, to individual reality. There's a challenge to, to belief. All right. So where does the author go? He goes from here into what may be some of the richest verses in the Bible that give us a robust doctrine of Scripture and the Word. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Right, right before this, he says, let us strive. It's a call to human agency. Strive to enter that rest. Great term of phrase, right? Work hard to enter into that rest, is the call here, in belief, so that no one fall by the same sort of disobedience. Verse 12, why? Because the Word of God is living and active. Why is the Word of God living and active? Because if you remember beforehand, the author of the Hebrews has described God as the living God. And God's Word comes from God's self that's differentiated from God's self, but is still identified with God's self. And God's Word, like God is living, God's Word is alive and it's active. It's not inert. The Scriptures are not neutral. They're alive and they're active. Um, and, and what kind of activity uh, do we see with the Scriptures? They're sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces down to dividing the very core of who we are at our, at our internal being, our soul and our spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Verse 13, And before whom no creature is hidden, but all eyes are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Now, I, I grew up in a Scripture memory kind of church culture. I learned a lot of Bible as a little kid, which frankly is a great blessing. Um, I learned a lot of Bible. I learned this verse as a little child. So whenever you have various doctrines of the Bible, I mean, uh, various doctrines of, of the church that you affirm, like the deity of Jesus, you go to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When you have your Bible verses that support a certain doctrine of Scripture, you go to 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed, it's inspired. Or you go to Hebrews 4.12. I mean, I remember this verse. The Scriptures are, the Word of God is alive and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, it cuts to the, mo to the bone and the marrow, dividing asunder the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So that it was always a very sort of positive thing. The Bible is alive and active, it does its work, God is operative with His Word, He doesn't leave it neutral, and all that's true. But I think reading these verses, preparing for our time together here again, you know, we know verses and we become overly familiar with them. But reading them with fresh eyes, I realize, well, this is a, these are hard words, right? None of us escape the all-seeing eye of God. None of us do. And to even take it to the next level, the author here says, and the Word of God, by the way, doesn't just look at your external actions. It, just, it doesn't look merely at the conformity to various societal norms or churchly norms or whatever. It's a, God's Word isn't looking just at that. God's Word goes down right to the very thoughts and intentions of your heart. 
I hear that and I go, bad news, right? Bad news. I cannot escape the all-seeing eye of God. Now, when it comes to intentions and that sort of thing, if you're like me, I just assume... Oh, this is so negative. I'm sorry. But I, I assume my intentions are bad, right? I mean, in other words, and that sometimes can paralyze people. I don't want to get involved in this because I don't know if I have the right motives and the right intentions. Answer, you don't, right? You don't. I mean, when it comes to knowing our own intentions and our own motivations, you can get caught in a vicious circle of navel-gazing when it comes to figuring out if my intentions are good or not. Answer, they're probably mixed, right? Good and bad. And here you have the author to the Hebrews saying that the Word of God cuts down to the very heart and can see all of that. It leaves us without excuse. The Word of God, and I think if we couple this with, with James chapter 1, the Word of God functions like a sword and like a mirror. It holds a mirror before us and forces us to see the caverns of our hearts that we really don't want to see and that oftentimes we don't even know. It's like a big old spotlight that shows us, do you know what? Your intentions and what goes down to the core of your being, the Word of God sifts it all out and it sees it and it renders us inexcusable. This is why I find the book of Hebrews so beautiful because it's so painfully honest about who we are, our proclivity as humans, and our need for a high priest. That's right where the author to the Hebrews goes. I never knew that or thought of it in that way, learning this verse from childhood up. I knew that the Word of God was alive and active. I knew that it cut down right into my heart and my soul. I knew that it laid bare my intentions and my motivations and that I could not escape the all-seeing eye of God. I knew all that was true. But look at the next move that the author to the Hebrews makes. Verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. What weaknesses? The ones that we just heard about back in verse 13 that go down into the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he is without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you see what's happened here? I mean, the author of the Hebrews is rhetorically beautiful and it's theologically beautiful. The Word of God, the all-seeing eye of God, will not leave you unexcusable. It will not leave you with excuse. It will leave you recognizing the thoughts and the intentions of your own heart are marked by your own humanity. Inescapably so. But since we have a high priest, let us draw near to him with confidence. That's the move. In other words, the author to the Hebrews does not give us Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13 to leave us in the sickness unto despair. Right? It doesn't leave us in a place of despair. It leaves us in a place of honesty about ourselves that then draws us and drives us to our faithful high priest. Since then, this is who we are. Let us draw with confidence to the throne of grace because we have a high priest um, who sympathizes with our our weaknesses. 
Now let's talk about a few things here with these two verses, 14 and 15. I mean, and 15 and 16. There are two exhortations that are going on here in these few verses, and these are beautiful verses. Number one, there's an exhortation to hold firmly to the faith that we profess. To hold firmly to the faith that we profess. Let us hold fast our confession. We'll come back to this. Number two, there's a challenge to approach God through grace with confidence. With confidence. Alright, so first of all, holding firmly to the faith that we profess. What is the faith that we profess? It's the faith that's being identified right here in these three tightly knit rhetorical verses. You have a high priest who ever lives to intercede for you. And because, as we'll see in chapter 5, he entered into human flesh and took on that which he was not. This is the great mystery of Christian theology. The great challenge of Christian theology is this, right? If God is immutable and He does not change, and we confess that to be true, then how in the world can there be an incarnation? Right? Then how in the world could the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, the very essence of God Himself, eternally generate of the Father from eternity past, how can it be that He takes on flesh? That is the mystery of the Gospel. And the author to the Hebrews is saying very clearly that that mystery is your very hope of salvation. It's the faith that we're to hold on to firmly. In the midst of all of the vicissitudes and the torturous character of our lives, which center in the book of Hebrews on suffering, right? The school of suffering. We go with Jesus to the school of suffering. And in that school, we're taught again and again that Jesus took on flesh and elevated that flesh through His own obedience in life and death, and now has brought humanity into the very throne room of God Himself, so that God's triune being includes humanity now. And Jesus, as our High Priest, stands in the Holy of Holies as our priest, interceding on our behalf, not without knowledge, but with sympathy, with a recognition, to use the language of the book of Psalms, with a recognition that He knows our frame. He remembers that we're just dust. And He didn't sin. But He can still sympathize. He still knows what it is to hunger, what it is to go without, what it is to not have a place to lay your head, what it is to be rejected by those that you love. All of the feelings and the emotions and the trauma of humanity that you find in the book of Psalms find themselves recapitulated in the life of Jesus again and again and again. So that when Jesus on the cross makes the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's making a claim about his relationship with his father for sure. Something's happened. There's been a fissure in the very life of God who can even have the words to articulate the fullness of what that was and is. But he's also doing more than that. Psalm 22 is a righteous suffering psalm. And when Jesus cries the cry of dereliction, He's identifying Himself with the righteous sufferers from time past and the time in time to come. Jesus knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. And He stands before the throne of God, ever living to intercede on our account. And what is He interceding with? He's interceding with His own finished atoning work. 
reminding the Father in a constant dynamic of inter-Trinitarian communication. What does, what does God talk about with Himself? I don't know to the fullness of it. But I know in one sense, in a very large sense, Jesus talks a lot about His atoning work and how His atoning work applies and is effectual for us. He's a high priest who sympathizes and empathizes with our humanity. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to struggle. And He prays for us on that account. That's the faith that the author to the Hebrews is encouraging us to hold on to um, to the end. To the end. That's the challenge. It's a call to perseverance. A perseverance of belief. I had a pastor uh, in, a pre- in a previous life. But I had a pastor who... Um, uh, was speaking one time, and it was sort of early in his ministry in this local church context. And he said in his sermon, someone asked me recently, what's your thing? And he's like, well, what do you mean, what's my thing? Like, what's your thing? You know, Are you into church growth? Do you do missions? Um, are you into spirituality? Um, spiritual formation and direction, counseling, Christian counseling. What's your sort of thing as a pastor? And he was, he was just incredulous. He said, I, I, I don't think I have a thing, actually. Um, I'd like, I, could really, I, think, I wouldn't mind one, but I don't know if I have one. He said, but it caused me to think. And he says, do you know what I think my thing is? I've identified it. You know what my hopes are for you as a congregation? He said, my hopes are really very quite straightforward and simple. That every one of you ends your days as a Christian. That's it. That's my thing. I want you all to persevere. I want you all from now until your final deathbed to persevere. To hold on, even if it's a fighting with God at the River Jabbok. But to be wrestling with God till you breathe your last breath. And no one communicates that as well, to my mind, as some of the great hymns of our faith, right? How many hymns of our faith move us from a confession of what we believe to our final days, right? The Rock of Ages, verse 3. When I draw life's fleeting breath, when my eyelids close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, Rock of Ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Hymns do this in marvelous ways that move us through all the movement of life until that final moment where even then, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. That's what the author to the Hebrews with pastoral urgency and care and passion is communicating to this group of fledgling Christians. Will you hold on to the truth of your faith, to the gospel, to your high priest who's holding on for you until you draw life's fleeting breath and eyelids close in death. That's the movement that's being made here. So it's a holding firmly to the faith that we profess. And number two, the challenge is to approach um, God's throne of grace uh, with confidence. Now that's a, um, a gargantuan claim. Actually, again, I'm familiar with these verses, so familiarity may be breeding some contempt, but to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Now, what's the throne of grace? Well, you know that the author to the Hebrews is working within an Old Testament frame of reference. And when you think about the temple and the way in which the first temple and the second temple were constructed, 
the worshiping people could go into the temple court and pray there. In fact, that's why Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 7 brings his first really directed sermon right there in the temple court. Why? Well, that's where everybody is. But then when it came to the next area, the holy area, the priest could go into there. Any priest who was set apart could go into that particular area. But not you and me. We wouldn't be going in there. But a priest could. But then we also know that one set apart appointed figure from the Aaronic line who did not um, who did not campaign for the job, sent in no application. It was a pure appointment from God Himself. We had the opportunity once a year, and I'm not sure anyone was really all that giddy about this, to be honest with you, but they had the opportunity once a year to go into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for themselves, to make atonement for the people, and to purify that temple so that worship could be pure and clean once again. And then he came out. And what the author to the Hebrews is saying here is, let all of you and me, none of us are in the ironic line, I don't believe, but you and I are allowed with confidence to go right through all of the trappings, through the veil, to the throne of grace itself, where the Ark of the Covenant resides, the mercy seat, and the cherubim are waiting on you there. That's the call. You can enter into the very throne room of God Himself with confidence. Who enters to the throne room of God with confidence? Only people who know that they have an effectual and a loving and a caring high priest who's interceding for them there. We come with confidence. Um, and notice here, it's not a confidence in ourselves. Right? Now, I, I have a, a son that I've been talking with a bit about confidence um, because he, uh, he um, doesn't lack for it, unfortunately. Um, I was going to the baseball field yesterday and coaching my son's baseball team, um, which is keeping me young. You know about this, Charles. Um, I do love baseball. It's going to be in heaven. Um, what other game is going to be in heaven? There's no clock on baseball. That's ready-made for heaven, right? Um, anyway, so you, you, uh, baseball, we're walking out there, a lot of, lot of rain, the field, and, and I look at the, um, I look at the field and I say, we, we're going to need to rake the clay. Let's get some rakes and rake the clay. And my son confidently says, it doesn't need to be raked, right? Well, you know, thank you for, don't let the truth get in the way of your, your confidence on that, right? Um, it's not a confidence here in Hebrews with ourselves. That's not the kind of confidence. It's just not a turn in to say, okay, I can do this. Um, we, we've got a, 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 our middle son's home woke up. You know, it's just it's been the month from hell. Other families know this as well. We've got a son who's thrown up this morning. So don't get too near. Um, sorry, you're too late, Donnie. Um, uh, <laughs> um, but, um, you know, so we, we, we had the TV on. And I don't know why I was up um, in my office and I came down and Joel Osteen was on TV. Right? And I heard my boys just sort of... Um, I was kind of proud of them. You know, they were, and I said, Naomi, did you prep them on this? And I think she did a little bit because she wanted them to hear what he's saying. And it was Joel Osteen this morning at his best, right? I mean, you can get it together and you can have your best life now. I mean, all the kind of things. And, and, and you hear that. And I heard my boy, my boys were saying, that's not right. That's not true. We're, and then one of my sons said, he hasn't mentioned Jesus once, right? Um, it's, it's not that kind of confidence. 
It's not a your best life now kind of confidence. It's not a turn in to say, I can actualize myself to be my true me. Your best self now. I'm like, I, I don't even know what that means. Um, I don't even know if I like my best self. You know, I, who knows this? Um, but here, Olsen is making that. It's not that. It's a confidence in our priest. It's a confidence that's not turning in. It's a confidence that's looking away and that says, the only reason that I can come into this throne room with confidence, why? So that I can receive mercy and grace. That's not coming from me. The only way that I can come in here with confidence is because I know that I have a priest who's on the throne who's also been victim as well. He's victim and priest and he's the Son of God and he knows my name and he's praying for me and I can come into the throne room and pray with confidence to receive mercy and grace for him because he's waiting on me there. It's the only place that I can meet God is at the mercy seat. I have nowhere else to go but the mercy seat where the blood atoning work of Jesus provides for me the mediatorial way and road of having direct access by the Son through the Spirit to the Father so that I can pray and receive grace and mercy. Because the author to the Hebrews knows it. And so does Jesus, our high priest. If we need anything, day in and day out, as we pray and as we come to the throne with confidence, if we need anything, we really need grace and mercy. So Lord, we're grateful that you are this kind of God who stoops low. You run off porches. You put flesh on when you didn't have to. Humbled yourself and became obedient even up to the point of the cross. As we read in chapter 5, we didn't get to it today, Lord, but as we read in chapter 5, you tell us and this wonderful book you've given us that Jesus, you learned obedience through suffering with loud cries and tears. And you bring all the loudness of your crying and the tears that you shed into the throne room of God, Lord, as it, as your atoning work continues to make itself effectual in our lives day in and day out. And so we all collectively come this morning boldly with confidence in your throne room, not because we should be there. We're not even worthy to gather up the crumbs under your table, but but we come because we know that your property is always to have mercy. And we know that what we need more than anything else towards mercy and grace. And so we cry out to you for it today, knowing that you are more than ready to give it. And we ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.